We are here, uh, uh, we've been working our way through church history. We've paused for about four weeks so far to deal with music. Uh, we're going to pause also next week. Uh, next week the teaching will be a little bit more diminished because we're kind of into contemporary Christian music, so we have a special guest coming. I want to tell you now, you'll get a letter from me this week as well on it. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, there's a Christian musician by the name of Phil Keggy. If you've ever heard of Phil Keggy. Yeah, usually you have to pay a lot of money to go hear him. This uh, you get for free. So um, come on in. Well, I say for free. It's an investment of your time, but but, uh, you'll be duly rewarded. I think he'll also probably be doing a song during the 930 service. But he's going to be in here, and uh, I'm excited about that. He's a neat, neat guy. He's bringing his wife as well, Bernadette, who's a wonderful gal. And if you have not listened to his music, uh, I'll try and get him to bring some CDs and stuff if you want to bring a little cashola. Uh, next week and uh, get a CD or something like that. His music is truly phenomenal. He'll be here uh, with guitar in hand. Meanwhile, where are we in this class? Well, we'd made it up through the 1700s. And as I was writing the lesson this week, I got out a hymnal that it turns out I stole. (laughs) I grew up, I grew up at the uh, Broadway Church of Christ in Lubbock, Texas. And (laughs) bless their hearts. You know, but the more I think about it, mom probably brought this home, not me. (laughs) Anyway, I grew up with this hymnal and there's a song in here. It's number 448. By the way, you know, one of the ways you can tell this is a Church of Christ hymnal. Shape notes. Um, Since they don't use instrumental music in most churches of Christ, they really work hard on harmony, uh, which you um, need to do when you don't have anything else except your voice. And uh, uh, but it's beautiful. And so the shaped notes is something that's typical. But if you see this song by Sarah Adams, the tune here is by Lowell Mason. Nearer my God to thee. How many of you might know this song? Oh, almost everybody near. Oh, Mark Langford. I've got him up here on the front row this week. Last week, if you were here, um, uh, we I called Mark Langford out to get up here and sing and lead us in singing and a number of people have said, if you're doing that kind of stuff, I'm sitting so far back, you can't see I'm here. I do want everybody to know that I had talked to Mark ahead of time and he had okayed the whole thing. So don't panic. I, I won't cold call you. Judge Eccles, would you come up and sing? No, I'm joking. Uh, the um, uh, <laughs> He was coming. Was, I, guy will run for office. He'll, uh, he'll certainly not be bashful about standing up in front of a crowd. Um, That's right. Nearer, my God, to thee, nearer to thee, even though it be a cross that raiseth me. Still all my song shall be nearer, my God, to thee, nearer, my God, to thee, nearer to thee. Though like a wanderer, the sun gone down, darkness be over me, my rest a stone. That never really made much sense to me growing up. My rest a stone. You need to get a better bed. Yet in my dreams I'd be nearer, my God, to thee. There let the way appear steps unto heaven. Yeah, that's a Led Zeppelin song. Stairway unto heaven. Uh, All that thou sendest me in mercy given, angels to beckon me. Okay, so I take that song. And I think, man, I sang that so long. So did so many of you. It's by a woman named Sarah Adams. She lived in 1805 to 1848. Didn't live too long. She died of tuberculosis. 
At first, she was a famous stage actress. Even as a teenager, she appeared on the stage. She played the part of Lady Macbeth to thunderous applause. But her health would not allow her to continue long on the stage. Tuberculosis is a disease of the lungs. And you can't project your voice like you need to on stage, especially in the era before microphones. So her stage career was cut short, this promising young actress. And she went back to her church. She was sorely disappointed. And her preacher said, well, let's put your talents to use in another way. Why don't you write a hymn for my sermon this Sunday? I'm going to be preaching on Jacob and Esau. And I would love you to write on it. And so, as was recognized as we read through the lyrics... She begins to read Genesis and she starts to understand the story of Jacob and Esau. But she spends a lot of time reading about Jacob's dream. If you're familiar with the story, Jacob's Ladder. It's where Jacob falls asleep at a place he names later Bethel, which is Hebrew, meaning the house, Beth, El of God. And so he, he names it Bethel because while he's sleeping, the stone, his rest, his bed, while he's sleeping, he dreams of a ladder to heaven and angels ascending and descending on that ladder, ministering to him. Of course, as Christians, we understand now that that dream was not just ministry to him and not just a story for Israel, but was actually a foreshadowing of the cross of Christ itself, which indeed would be the ladder unto heaven where there would be ascending and descending communion with God. But uh, um, uh, she writes the song, Nearer My God to Thee, Nearer to Thee, Even Though It Be a Cross That Raises Me. She recognized it as the cross too. All my songs shall be nearer my God to Thee. Second verse, Though a wanderer, the sun gone down, darkness over me, my rest a stone. Yet in my dreams I'd be nearer my God to Thee. Now who would have ever thought that 72 years later, the Titanic has been on its maiden voyage for a while when it's struck by an iceberg. The Titanic sinks. There are not enough lifeboats to take everybody away. The band stays and plays till the very end as the boat goes down. The last song the band played was Nearer My God to Thee. The band leader was the son of a devout minister and had always said he had wanted that song played at his funeral. And so the band plays that. Now, if you do your, your research on this, and there, I footnoted a, a wonderful paper written on it by a, a musicologist, Ph.D. There is one fella out there who said, no, 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 it was Autumn that was played. But most all scholars agree uh, it was nearer my God to thee. There are actually three melodies it's well known to sing it with. Uh, one that we know is the Lowell Mason version that I put up there. That's called Bethany is that melody. But there are two others, one written by Arthur Sullivan and one written by uh, John Dykes. Uh, and so there's all these debates over which melody and all. But if you saw the movie 1997 Best Picture Titanic, they have the band playing the melody we're familiar with, the Lowell Mason melody, as the, the ship is going down. You could actually have bought a postcard. This is an antique vintage postcard. After the sinking of the Titanic, 
based on the song. If you look at the first frame, Nearer My God to Thee with the cross, and you see the Titanic going down. You see the lifeboats with, with a few people. And then the second verse with the Titanic in the background, you have the woman there, Nearer My God to Thee, Nearer to Thee, Even Though It Be a Cross That Raiseth Me, Still All My Song Shall Be Nearer My God to Thee. Um, the, the third verse, you see the ladder ascending with the angels and descending in the picture. Um, there let my song appear, uh, steps unto heaven, or there let me something appear. All that thou sendest me in mercy given, angels to beckon me, nearer my God to thee, nearer to thee. And so it was even on a postcard. In 1901, President William McKinley in the United States was uh, assassinated. And the physician attending him said his dying breath was uh, the, the words to this song. As he said, nearer my God to thee, even though it be a cross. Uh, the song was played at Gerald Ford's funeral. And, and I tell you this to say that the songs that we have that minister to us are not just, we, we, we don't need to see them just in our little capsule of space and time. Or we miss much. We need to see that behind all of these songs are stories. There are stories of how the songs were written. But they're stories of how the songs have ministered to people throughout the ages. I could give you personal stories of how songs have ministered to me in my life. I'm sure you could do the same. And uh, uh, that's what we have. Now, in time frame for our class, all of this is we built it around the preaching of John and Charles Wesley. The songwriting of the Wesleys and the preaching of George Whitfield, who also put together a number of hymnals and uh, uh, was responsible for a number of songs as well. If we look at these two, three people, who really are the, not just the germination of the Methodist church, but of so many other things out of the 1700s, it's not surprising to find that a lot of people that were in contact with the Wesleys, either at contemporary or, or later on, the, the, the offspring, if you will, from the Wesleys, uh, also influenced our music profoundly. So, for example... There was a fella named Augustus Montague Toplady. And most of the time you see his name abbreviated A.M. Toplady. Toplady. But I think anybody with such a, an extravagant name deserves to have it said. So I'll say it. Augustus Montague Toplady. It's a good thing we don't uh, have any more opportunities probably to name children. I'm not sure. Do you remember, this digresses, and I shouldn't do this, it's a long lesson, but one of my favorite lines in any book I've ever read is in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis. The first line of that book is uh, such pithy good writing. He says, there once was a boy named Clarence Eustace Scrub, and he almost deserved it. I don't know what Augustus Montague Toplady did to get his name, but it just makes me wonder. Augustus Toplady um, was, was at odds with uh, uh, the Wesleys on the issue of predestination. And John Wesley wrote vociferously against Toplady. Originally, they had been friends, but the, the, the chasm developed and they really came to butt heads. And they wrote against each other and they preached and taught against each other. Uh, Toplady was a, an interesting fella. He was writing in a gospel magazine and he did a mathematic computation of how many sins the average person will have over their lifetime. He came up with over two and a half billion sins in a lifetime. To which he said, astutely, 
we need a savior. Now, in America, we spell savior without that U, but he was British. So I think he said we need a savior with the U. That's not a misspelling. That's the British spelling. Um, We need a savior. And then after this wonderful article at the end, he attached a song he'd written. The song? Rock of Ages. Okay, Mark, you got Rock of Ages in the back, guys. Uh, Flip open. Mark, lead us in a verse of Rock of Ages. for me let me hide myself in thee let the waters and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Thank you. You'll see in a hymnal, A.M., of course, those in the know, say Augustus Montague, Toplady, he's the guy who wrote the song, didn't write the tune. The tune is written on the right, the author of the tune, the composer on the right side. Most of the time in those early days, you'd have someone different write the tune than the person that actually wrote the song. And so uh, we have Rock of Ages. Uh, the second verse, you can see this fellow was very intent on, on the issue of two and a half billion plus sins. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal, no respite, no. Could my tears forever, if I had all the zeal in the world, if I cried nonstop for the rest of my life, none of that would atone for my sins. You must save Rock of Ages, you alone. I don't bring anything to you. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Um, interesting uh, a song that, that has outlived his name. And uh, because it it is a wonderful way of ministering to us the need for Jesus and his cross. Now, while Toplady is at odds with uh, Wesley, uh, the Wesleys, there are others who are students of the Wesleys and and Whitfield. Robert Robinson, as a 17-year-old, goes to hear Whitfield preach. And that sermon was seminal in his conversion. And he comes to Jesus. And he gives his life to Jesus and then uh, uh, starts out as a Methodist preacher, ultimately becomes a Baptist preacher. But uh, Robert Robinson, at the age of 22, writes a Methodist song that has made it uh, with some changes in, in some song books today. He writes, come thou fount of every blessing. Who knows the song? Okay, interesting. See if you know it the way he wrote it. This is the way he wrote the lyrics. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Now, if you look in most Church of Christ hymnals, at least, and and, uh, others as well, you will not find, come, thou fount of every blessing. You will find, oh, thou fount of every blessing. Anybody know, oh, as this song instead of come? Just a few. Oh, thou fount of every blessing. 
the reason why there was this change is a fear that this song was asking the Holy Spirit to come in some new, fresh, direct way that may be some type of a charismatic experience. And so instead of asking for some new charismatic experience, you say instead, Oh, thou fount of every blessing, recognizing the fount is already among us. There's not a new experience. You see it more directly in the way the second verse or the way the second half of this verse is changed. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. And that's the charismatic reference to Acts chapter 2. Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. Now, the songbook I grew up with changed it. Instead of teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above, it was teach me ever to adore thee. May I still thy goodness prove while the hope of endless glory fills my heart with joy and love. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Anybody know what an Ebenezer is? Oh, several. It's Hebrew. Yes, it's Hebrew. It comes from two Hebrew words, Eben and Ezer. It means stone of help. And it's a reference uh, uh, to uh, the passage in Samuel where, where uh, uh, David names the, the pla- or Samuel, excuse me, names the place where God conquers the Philistines, Ebenezer, because he, in 1 Samuel 7, constructs a stone there to remember that God conquered the same Philistines who three chapters earlier had beaten the Israelites and taken the Ark of the Covenant. So he raised an Ebenezer. The idea being, here is where I put something symbolic to remember what God has done in my life. I ask you, has God ever done anything in your life? I can remember things God has done for me for, for as long as I can remember my life. Oh, and I mean, sometimes you wonder. I can remember as a 10-year-old boy praying the night before a baseball game, God, let me hit a home run tomorrow. The next day, I hit the home run. And the immediate thought as I'm rounding the bases was, thank you, God. Although, I wonder if I'd have hit that if I hadn't prayed it. You know, and you, and you, you have this struggle with, with God and, and how it fits in and where it fits in and what, what goes. But ultimately, we do know that every good gift comes from Him. And we do have times, baptism is a wonderful Ebenezer in our life where we can look back and say, yes, uh, uh, I, I gave my heart to God. I know I did. You know, here is something, you know, the Lord's Supper is an Ebenezer. It's a time of remembrance. It's an outward showing of something that's happened in history where God has, has reached out and ministered to us and touched us with his grace. So that's uh, the Ebenezer. Now, let me tell you about another fellow. This is a fellow who was really impressed with the preaching of the Wesleys. The Wesleys really touched him. But his heart wasn't always there. We've got a picture of this fellow. His name's John. I'll call him Johnny. Um, I don't know that anybody did, but I like Johnny. So I'm calling him Johnny. Johnny was a fellow. He was born in the 1700s. His mother was a very devout woman. She told him that God had put him special on the earth and that he was there to minister. His dad was a ship captain and, and a trader, uh, not as in Benedict Arnold, but as in trading, a trader with a D. He was a trader with a ship and was tra- made his money in trading, was gone a lot. Um, but the boy stayed at home with his mother. His mother made him memorize scripture. She used the Bible to teach him to read a little bit. He never learned to read that much because when he was seven, his mother died. 
and left him in the care of his dad who wasn't home much. And Johnny ran the streets and Johnny got in trouble. And Johnny was a difficult kid at the age of 11. Johnny takes to the seas with his dad. And uh, uh, at the time, uh, sailors were not known for the highest of morality. And the 11-year-old boy grew up amidst uh, a lot of problems and a lot of sin and a lot of corruption. He fell into it. He was a dangerous guy on the boats. His shipmates didn't care for him much. There was a time where he fell overboard, and instead of uh, rescuing him with some type of a life preserver or something, they threw the whale harpoon at him, hit him in the hip, and dragged him back on the boat. Uh, he walked with a limp for the rest of his life because of it, because of the, the mess it made of his hip. This was a fellow who one time tried to run away from the ships, got caught, and uh, when they caught him and brought him back to the ship, they tied him to the mast, stripped him naked, and uh, beat him and, and spit on him and abused him and all of this kind of mess. He ultimately got to where he was making a pretty good living. He was living in Sierra Leone, Africa. And the way he was making a living was as a slave trader. He would take liquor, he would take jewels, he'd take money, and he'd trade them to the African chiefs in return for the more fit of the children that he'd then put on the ships. And 80% of them, perhaps, if they were healthy, might survive the conditions all the way over to America where they'd be sold into slavery. And he made his money in this horrible sinful way he accepted the fact that a lot of the slaves would die on the way it didn't matter they were soulless to him this was a wretched man living a wretched life until he was on a boat going back to england and the storms came and it looked like the boat was not in any good condition. And he'd learned enough to read to where he grabbed the imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. That was a book in the captain's hold on the ship. The captain was bringing him back to England because his dad had found him finally and said, I want to see the boy. And so he's coming back. He's got a limp. He's got sins that are so long it would make most all of us blush. And he comes to Jesus. And he decides to change his life. And he decides to start preaching. And he goes back and starts learning Greek and Hebrew. And he goes back and studies the scriptures. And he studies under the Wesleys who were some of the strongest voices against slavery. And he was preaching a sermon and he wrote a song for his congregation. The song he wrote, it's ironic. He writes, John Newton is his name. John Newton writes a song in 1772 that almost 200 years later, 199 years later, becomes the number 15 hit on the Billboard Top 100 in America. Would you play us cut one? This is the hit version.
thank you. Judy Collins version. Um, boy, if ever a guy was someone who could write a song like that, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Amazing grace. It's a great story to a song that's now ministered to countless. Um, meanwhile, we've been talking Protestant churches. Let me tell you what's been going on in the Catholic church. They've been real upset, a number of them, that all of these songs in this congregational singing is catching on so much in the Protestant churches. they got to do something about it. So something starts being done. There's this fellow named Frederick Faber. Now, Frederick is actually an Episcopal or Anglican minister in England. But he's not happy with the way things are going in the Anglican church. He converts to Catholicism. And when he converts to Catholicism, he takes a little congregational singing and a little bit of this uh, new hymnody with him and proceeds to write a very Catholic song. The song, Faith of Our Fathers. You'll see it inside your, your handout. If you look at Faith of Our Fathers, it, um, what number is it? Anybody know? Okay. Um, Faith of Our Fathers. Faith of Our Fathers, living still, in spite of dungeon, fire, and sword. See, at the time, the Catholic Church and the Catholics were still persecuted in England. Oh, how our hearts beat high with joy whenever we hear that glorious word. Faith of our fathers, holy faith will be true to thee till death. And he's fighting hard to get Catholics accepted in English, not only society, but legal structure. So that Catholics can have the rights of others in, in British society. Our fathers... Chained in prisons dark, were still in heart and conscience free. How sweet would be their children's fate if they, like them, could die for thee. Faith of our fathers, holy faith. Now, that's not the only song that the Catholic Church has given to us that we sing. But there's another song as well. There was a wonderful church in, uh, in Oben, Oberndorf, Austria. And uh, in the Christmas season, in the 1800s, there was, they were getting ready for the Christmas Eve service. And a couple of years before, the father there, Father Joseph Moore, had written some words to a Christmas song. But as they, and he decided to use it there in Christmas, the Christmas Eve service in 1818, the problem was the organ was busted. What to do? Well, he, uh, Father Moore went to the church organist. He said, uh, don't you play the guitar? Church organist said, yeah. He said, all right, well, I've, I've got this song, and I'd like you to put it to music, maybe two voices and a guitar. And so uh, the uh, organist took it home, got out his guitar, dusted it off, and put together a beautiful song for two voices or many voices or one voice and a guitar. And on Christmas Eve, 1818, in the small Catholic church, in the snow-covered Alps of Oberndorf, Austria, for the first time, rang this song, Silent Night, Holy Night, All is Calm, All is Bright. Of course, that's the English version. The song was written in German. But that's an English translation that we're most familiar with. 
And that's the genesis of yet another song that comes out of the Catholic Church but made its way into the Protestant hymnals. We've got a lot of Protestant songs that have made their way into the Catholic hymnals as Christians have continued to try and grow and learn from each other through the years. Now, most of the songwriters, with the exception of Sarah Adams we've talked about, have been men. But I don't want to leave out the women because some of the best songwriters in Christian church history have been women. My favorite is Fanny Crosby. Now, this is a picture, an actual photograph of Fanny Crosby that was taken when she was 88 years old. Fanny Crosby, though, was a remarkable woman. She was born in 1820. She died in 1915. She was blind since age six weeks. She was six weeks old when she had an eye condition. And the doctor said, put these poultices on her eyes. And it was a bad treatment. And it made her blind. So from the age of six weeks on for the rest of her life, she was blind. Yet she was an incredible woman of God. Now, this was not, gee, sit down and read the Braille. This is pre-Braille. But God put in this woman a brain that's just remarkable. I put in your handouts that she memorized a lot of scripture. Let me give you an idea. According to her autobiography, she memorized the first four books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. She memorized the Gospels. She memorized countless chapters of the Bible. All by the age of ten. Okay. This is a gal who, when she was nine, wrote the following poem. Oh, what a happy soul I am, although I cannot see. I'm resolved that in this world, contented, I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't? To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. She used to tell people, I have such an advantage over you because the first face I'll ever see is going to be the face of my Savior Jesus. You've had to look at all these other mugs all your life. <laughs> Fanny Crosby went to school at the New York School of the Blind when she was 15. She stayed there for about seven or eight years, then went back and taught there afterwards. She married a fellow who was blind. She lived a long, contented life, and she wrote over 8,000 hymns. Let me see if you know any of them. Do you know... Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Do you know Jesus is tenderly calling thee home? Calling today, calling today. How about to God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son. Do you know, uh, whoops, I didn't put any more on there, sorry. There are more, over 8,000. She wrote some incredible songs. I do want to move us along. There is uh, another movement that a lot of songs came from. In America, the Sunday school movement took good, firm hold after the Revolutionary War. Most communities didn't have any schools. There weren't really public schools everywhere like we have today. So Sunday school started in many areas of America as a way to teach children how to read. It was truly a school that met on Sunday through the church. They couldn't have school all day during the day anyway... Because most kids had to work to help support the family. 
So on Sunday, there would be a Sunday school that would be tacked on to church. And here is where children learn to read, learn to sing. And out of the Sunday school movement in America came a lot of songs. This fella, William Batchelder Bradbury, they usually abbreviate his middle name as the initial B, um, was an incredible fella. He was from Maine originally. He didn't live but 52 years in his life. But he was one of the major writers of songs in the Sunday school movement. Growing up, his church organist uh, uh, and choir director was Lowell Mason. Lowell Mason's who wrote the melody that we started class with. The Sarah Adams song on the Titanic that you hear. That was his choir director. And uh, uh, so William Bradbury grows up at, uh, in his 20s. I think at the age of 25, he becomes the organist at the First Baptist Church in New York City. And uh, he proceeds to write a number of tunes and songs that we're very familiar with. Just as I am. You know that song? You know, he leadeth me. You know, sweet hour of prayer. You know that one? Do you know uh, Jesus like a shepherd leheda us? On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And he was reading a book one time. You know, he's writing a lot of these songs for Sunday school, for children. He's reading a book one time and he reads this lyric in a book. And he thinks, what a wonderful lyric. I think I'll put this to music so we can teach it to the kids in Sunday school. And so the fellow who wrote, Just As I Am, who wrote, He leadeth me, sweet hour of prayer, Christ the solid rock I stand, writes a melody. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And it comes in the Sunday school movement. The Sunday school movement's not just going on here. It's also going on in England. There's this fellow named Sabine Baring Gold. Gould. Anybody ever heard of him? Okay, this is an incredible guy. This is a guy. He's a weirdo. Okay, let's just get that out. Bless his heart. Uh, real early. But... Um, He's, he's like pretty along in age and he's got some family lands and some money and all. And he stumbles upon this gal who works at the mill. She's named Grace Taylor. Grace is 16. And she sets his middle-aged heart afire. But he can't have anything to do with a 16-year-old illiterate daughter mill worker gal. So he pays for her to go to two years of school. Sends her off to get her educated. And then when she comes back at 18, he marries her, and they proceed to have 15 children. Yeah. Um, she'd have found it easier to stay at the mill worker. But um, <laughs> they have 15 children. By the way, Sabine Baring Gould has a good friend named George Bernard Shaw who's pretty inspired by this and writes the play Pygmalion, which becomes the musical My Fair Lady, about Henry Higgins or whatever his name is and, you know, taking the young gal, based upon the life of Sabine Baring Gould. Now, this fellow with 15 kids, he's got to write some songs for the Sunday school movement for the kids. So he proceeds to write a marching song. Let's get a song for the kids to march to. Kids love to march. My kids, man, when Gracie, Gracie leaves this today to go to Pepperdine for college. We're all sad. Um, but when Gracie was little, she used to walk around the house. Oh, I love a parade. Marching. She loved to march. And Rachel would get right behind her marching. 
Oh, on a good day, they'd get out a pan and a spoon. Bam, bam, I love a parade. And they'd be marching. Kids like to march. So uh, he writes a marching song. He doesn't have a good melody, though. He needs a melody. Enter into the picture Arthur Sullivan. Arthur Sullivan writes melodies. That's what he does. In fact, he's going to team up in a few years later with this fellow named W.S. Gilbert. And Gilbert and Sullivan are going to write all sorts of melodies and small operas together. The Pirates of Penzance. Hail, hail, the gang's all here. Actually, those weren't words added until Fred Astaire sang it later. But that was the melody from the Pirates of Penzance. Uh, HMS Pinafore. I'm, uh, I'm little buttercup, sweet little buttercup. Same guy. So he puts a good melody together for this marching song. And the kids have the marching song. What is it? Onward Christian soldiers. Marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ the royal master leads against the foe forward into battle. See his banners go. Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus. Now, these aren't the only places where great songs came from. We have great songs that came out of, of the slavery issue and, and tragedy here in our country. Um, uh, the, the, the gospel songs and the roots of so much American music comes from this time period as well. The graphic that I've chosen for this uh, has uh, uh, in Latin, in Dio speramus. It means in God we hope. That God would break the chains of, the, of the, the slaves and that God would bring life to them. You know, the slaves had strong affinities for understanding persecution like none of us really do. Um, I don't know how, being who I am, I can get into the mindset of what it would have been like. I, I, I can't. But even still in my own limited way, aside from the fact that it leaves us in horror over what humans are able to do to other humans... Uh, I am amazed at the way so many of the slaves were able to find their faith as solace in this time. But not only as solace, but also a means of direction for freedom. Because you see, while there were slave states that, that held bad slave laws, there was also freedom in other states and real freedom up in Canada. And so we had the Underground Railroad that shipped out over 100,000 working through a lot of Methodist churches and other churches to try and help funnel out the slaves and give them a way to freedom. And the slaves had songs that taught not only how to get through the Underground Railroad, but had songs that taught uh, 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 um, issues of faith, but issues of freedom. Can you play the second song real quick? Just a cut. You know this song. Sweet low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. Sweet low, sweet chariot. I looked over Jordan. Jordan was symbolic for either the Ohio River, which marked the line of freedom, 
or even Canada and the Canadian border itself. And that was a place of freedom. And that's where many slaves were, would, would sacrifice their lives to try and, and find. And this was a song that helped port that way. But it did it all in a matter of faith as well. If you get there before I do, coming for to carry me home, tell my, all my friends I'm coming too. Coming for to carry me home. I'm sometimes up and sometimes down. Coming for to carry me home. But still my soul feels heavenly bound. Coming for to carry me home. Heaven in an earthly sense as well as in an eternal sense. Now not only, um, oh, the brightest day that I can say coming for to carry me home is when Jesus washed my sins away. If we leave that out, we only see it as a song pointing them north as opposed to a song that says as great as it would be to be free on this earth, the greatest day, the brightest day that's ever been is back behind us. When Jesus bore my sins. It's an incredibly profound song. Now it wasn't only there. There was a woman by the name of Julia Ward Howard. You recognize the song. The Battle Hymn of the Republic. Julia Ward Howard. In 1861. December of 1861. She goes with her husband and pastor down to Washington D.C. They have a chance to review the Union troops. That are do it marching and, and put an exercise in front of uh, President Abraham Lincoln. They're singing a song, John Brown's Body. Uh, she doesn't care much for it, though the melody's haunting and disturbing. Her preacher says, well, why don't you write some different words, something that would encourage the troops. That night, they're staying at the Willard Hotel in Washington, D.C. She can't sleep. She's restless. Somewhere in the middle of the night, she gets up without disturbing her husband. She grabs the steel pen, dips it in the ink well, and just writes out these words, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He's loosed his, the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. I've seen him in the watch fires. See, that's what she saw that day. Of a hundred circling camps. They've built in him an altar in the evening dews and damps. I can read his righteous sentence by the dim and flaring lamps. His truth is marching on. In the beauties of the lily... Christ was born across the sea with a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. As he died to make men holy, let us live to make men free. See, it's a civil war hymn. While God is marching on. Now, next week, we have Phil Keggy. That's him today. That's him about a decade ago. He played at uh, Linda McCartney's sister's wedding. So he and Paul had a chance to jam a little bit. And uh, we've got him next week. Here's our points for home. Give me... Four minutes with this, please. We'll be done. Horatio Spafford. Great guy. He was a lawyer. <laughs> In Chicago. Married uh, Norwegian immigrant. Young lady named Anna Spafford. Great gal. Horatio had uh, done pretty well in the practice of law. He was a senior partner at one of the top law firms in Chicago. He'd taken a lot of his extra money. He'd invested it in real estate. And then in 1871 came the great fire of Chicago that burned out four straight miles of the town. And it burned up almost all of his property, almost all of his money. It burned up his law firm, almost all his possessions. You think, oh, collect on the insurance policy. Heh <laughs> Not back then. Okay? So uh, um, he's like in uh, a lot of trouble. But he's got his life and he spends his time and effort ministering to those who are more 
needy than he is. He and his family all do. The problem is the school his kids were in, it got burned down. And a year or two later, it still hadn't been rebuilt. The kids aren't getting education and he wants them educated. He's got four lovely daughters. So the agreement is made that he and his wife, uh, Horatio and Anna, will take their four lovely daughters and they'll go overseas and enroll them in an English academy. So they get uh, 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 ready to go. They get all packed. They're going to be gone for quite a while. And right as they're about to leave, a business deal comes up, as it seems to do for lawyers, as my family will attest to. A legal matter arises that he's got to tend to. So he sends his wife and four daughters on with the promise that he'll catch up. The wife and four daughters, they get to New York City. They board a boat, the Villa du Havre, or however you'd say it in French. I don't do that well. Um, They get on the Villa du Havre, and they start embarking across the Atlantic. Meanwhile, Horatio goes back to Chicago. He's going to tend to his legal business and come meet him, right? Well, there's a picture uh, that Courier and Ives did. See that boat getting rammed right there by this boat? That's the boat that his wife and four daughters were on. And uh, the boat was rammed, and the boat that they were on, the ship they were on, went down. And uh, the story, as related later, is that the wife is trying hard to hold on to the kids, but the suction in the water is ripping the kids out from her hands and her arms. The last little kid, she's got a hold of one of the daughters, and the daughter's holding her clothes, and the, the, the suction pulls the daughter away, and she drowns. And, and the wife is unconscious, but somehow floating on a log and is rescued. It takes seven, no, nine days for the ship that rescues them to get to England so that a cable can be sent back. And so for these nine days, the word is that the ship sunk, but the survivors no one knows. And so Horatio is wondering what happens. Then he gets this telegram from his wife nine days later. Saved alone. What shall I do? And um, he sits down. This man of faith. Losing the property and the real estate didn't seem all that significant, I'm sure. He's just lost his only four children. All four daughters. And he sits down. And he takes a piece of stationery there in the, the hotel where he is in Chicago, the Brevoort House. And he writes the following. I don't know if you can really see that. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows, like sea billows, roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound, the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. He's lost his kids to the sea billows. His life seems a wreck. I will tell you, he and his wife went on to establish a place in uh, Jerusalem where they lived and set up a ministry that continued and is still ongoing today. An incredible ministry with a lot that's been done through that. But at the time, his world's a wreck. And yet, it is well with his soul because there is someone 
who will be coming back and the clouds will roll back like a scroll. The trump shall resound. The Lord shall descend. On that day, the faith will be sight. He will see his children and be reunited. And because life's end on earth is not the end, he could sing and write, it is well with my soul. Mark, would you lead us? We're way late. Would you lead us in that last verse, at least, of that song? Haste the day when the faith shall be sighed. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul. See you next week.